We are starting uh, week two of our Jude series, Contend for the Faith. Contend for the Faith. And what we said last week was Jude is only 461 words. The entire uh, book of Jude is a short letter. 461 words. I have already said more words than that in your presence today. And we're going to have a few more as we go the rest of this month. But it is packed with practical insight uh, practical teaching for our daily lives. And so we're going to continue to look at Jude for the rest of this month. Uh, last week, what we saw is Jude was exposing that sort of the metaphor we use is, is we as believers in Jesus, we have to paddle upstream at times. That the culture is not for us, the culture is against us. That uh, even sometimes there's people in the raft with us that, um, whether by ill will or ignorance, are even paddling the wrong direction. So sometimes we're even paddling against each other, trying to work upstream towards the purpose that God has for us. And so we pick it up today from that spot as uh, Jude has been talking about the ungodly or those who were paddling the wrong direction in verse 8. We pick it up there and Jude says, In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies. They reject authority and heap uh, abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they don't understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to you! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. Jude goes on. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about them, see the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and convict them all of the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness, of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Verse 16 These people are grumblers, fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. An interesting passage. Jude is not holding back, is he? Jude is not exactly uh, tiptoeing around words he has for those who may be paddling the wrong direction on the stream of life. He continues talking about ungodly people. So last week we said we're we're paddling against culture and maybe even against those around us who, in Jude's words, have perverted or twisted truth for their own agenda. This week, Jude compares the behavior of such people to the behavior of irrational animals, which is such a sticky phrase, irrational animals. What this is, is this instinct that, that people live by. He says they live by instinct, these irrational animals, and it's a sensual instinct. Not sensual in the, the modern way we sometimes use it uh, in a physical sense, but sensual as in you have five senses. You have taste and smell and sight, and you can hear and you can touch. You have five senses. And so irrational animals live by nothing more than their senses. They're living for a sensual existence. Uh, I have an animal that lives in my house that is uh, quite irrational. His name is Sam. He is on the screen. Ah, oh, puppies. You want him? Okay, so... Sam lives a a sensual existence. He lives to taste and touch and hear and smell and see. His world is not in making bonds with people or building relationships with others or finding great meaning or or helping someone do. His world is entirely 100% instinct. 
He is a purely sensual being. He is absolutely irrational. We're going to talk about him more later. And if you would like him, uh, you can sign up at the info center if you want a dog. Jude gives us some human examples as well of what uh, that looks like. In verse 10 and 11, I'll put it back up on the screen for you. As he's called people irrational animals who live by instinct, he then mentions, woe to them. They've taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's heir. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. What does that mean? So he's pulling back three stories uh, that all uh, the good Jews would have known. That Cain, in his hypocrisy in Genesis 4, in hatred and envy, led to the, the murder of his brother Abel. When he was asked, hey, what, have you seen Abel? He goes, am I my brother's keeper? Which is ironically the most selfish possible response to that because he was asked about his brother and he still turned it about himself. Cain was ultimately selfish. He was aiming for birth order. He was aiming for the status that would come with it. Balaam was a false prophet in Numbers 22. You look at what he did. He uh, taught a deviation from the doctrine that was accepted. He taught a deviation of holiness because he was being paid to do so. He was selfish. He was for hire. Korah was an insurrectionist in Numbers 16 and 26. He had an envy of Moses and Aaron in the position that some had in the kingdom of God, and his envy led him to start a rebellion. He was selfish. He was looking for status and position. All three of those that he mentioned, that Jude mentions, were at their core selfish beings. And so they acted irrationally. They acted uh, chasing their own senses and their own desires and their own wants as opposed to the greater purpose they had been created for. There were people acting like irrational animals, failing to place themselves in the larger picture that God had created for them. We would call them myopic, meaning they couldn't see past their own selves. They couldn't see past their own interests like a horse with blinders that only knows one way to go. And so all three of those were these examples that Jude gives us. They are animals fed at the trough. They eat thoughtlessly. Sam the dog just responds to his needs. When nature calls, we have these bells that hang on our back door. And if no one notices that Sam is waiting by the back door, he pauses the bells and the bells ring. And so we know to let him out. And he goes out and instinct does whatever it does somewhere in my backyard. I don't want to know. And then he comes back in, he scratches the door. We let him back in and life is back to normal for him. If he's barking at the neighbors, purely by instinct, thinking that he needs to bark at the neighbors because he's an idiot, we, we have a button, and his collar has a nice little shocking device. We don't shock him. You can put it on buzz, and if he doesn't respond to the buzz, then he gets a little, a little jolt. But we, we buzz the thing, and it just vibrates on his neck, and that immediately, he stops barking like it shakes him back into reality, and he runs to the back door, and he comes back in. Just instinct. Oh, there's something. Oh, I, must, I need to go in. When he eats, the weirdest thing on earth, when he eats, he transports his food to the carpet by a, the mouthful. How many people's dogs do this? You want to know Why? So, so Sam picks up a, a mouthful of food from his bowl in the kitchen on tile, which can be cleaned, and then he walks 25 feet away into the living room. He drops that whole mouthful of food onto the carpet, looks around satisfied, and then eats his food, only to go back to the bowl and do it all over again. And he, this is how he eats his food every day. So when you look this up and you ask veterinarians, you ask people who know what they're talking about, who've done the research, this is pure animal instinct that dogs are descendant from wolves, right? In the wild, the, their nearest uh, animal kind of cousin is a wolf. And wolves run in packs. Good, you're getting along with this. So wolves run in packs, and they, they hunt in packs, and they eat in packs. But what happens when you have a wolf pack that takes down an animal and is then going to eat on it? The most dominant wolf gets the largest portion. 
And so what you see in the wild and wolves is that the smaller, weaker, subordinate wolves will then take their mouthful. They'll, if they can get a leg or they take a mouthful, they'll run with it far enough away that no one's going to bother them. They'll eat it in peace by themselves so they don't get pushed out of the kill. Then they run back to the kill and they try to get another bite full before they get bit by the larger wolf. And then they'll take it back away and eat it away from the group again. So Sam the dog in his house with his $4 a month Amazon-delivered terrible food that's 83% cardboard by design. I do not spend money on this dog. Sam is afraid instinctually that other members of his pack, that's us human beings, are somehow going to steal his food if he eats it at his bowl. And so he picks it up on instinct and carries it away. Now, if my children are ever caught eating Sam's food, we have a larger problem, but it's not an issue. No one's ever tried to go eat his food. It's terrible. Other dogs don't even like it. And yet this is what he does. He acts as an irrational animal simply by instinct. Simply by instinct. People are called to something higher. Understanding of a larger reality than our own wants and needs. People are called to something greater. God does not want us to mindlessly feed at the trough of life, but to thankfully recognize that provision comes from his hand. There's something greater at play. We pray before meals. Most people pray before meals when you become a Christian. That's the first thing you learn to do. We don't, we don't much pray in my house, um, thanking God for nourishment. That's part of it, I suppose. But if you were fly on the wall at my dinner table, what you would hear us thank God for is provision as a representation of something greater. Almost every prayer we have before a meal is, God, thank you for what's in front of us, but it isn't about what's in front of us. It's about what this represents as a greater whole, that you provide everything we need, that you provide family, and you provide health, and you provide hope, and you provide grace for us, that you provide your son. Like, every single meal is not about the salad or the pizza or the steak in front of you. Every single meal is a greater representation that in this tiny little ounce of provision, there is a pound of provision that I don't even recognize. And so this provision brings me back to a greater reality. This little moment brings me back to the greater purpose. And every single time we eat, I don't think, thank you, God, for the burrito. I say, thank you, God, that you got me that you provide, that you've ushered me into something greater than myself. It's just a representation of something total, of breath and hope and mercy. It's about our place in God's bigger story. And so every meal is an invitation to rediscover that God has you in a bigger story than your own, that it isn't about what's in front of me, it's about what's around me. Judah's looking at people who've heard of Jesus, who maybe follow Jesus, and still live selfish lives. And it's almost like Judah's losing his mind. Jude is beside himself. You can hear it in sort of the anger and the venom in what he's saying. He's just going, come on, we, we know better. We see selfishness in every single aspect of what Jude is talking about. Selfishness is a perversion of reality that allows us to see ourselves as the central point in the universe. Selfishness is a perversion that allows us to see ourselves as the central point in the universe, that the world revolves around me. How many parents have said that to teenagers in their worst moment? How many of us as teenagers have heard that from our parents? The world doesn't revolve around you. We hear that. We say that. We think that. That's just a reflection of selfishness being lived out, that when, when we feel that, whether we're doing it or being, it's being done to us, we go, gosh, that can't be real. That's not reality. There's something wrong there. Selfishness establishes me and my sensual, those five senses, sensual satisfaction as the central purpose of life. I seek my desires, my wants, my needs. Selfishness reduces the believer to the station of an irrational animal. When we really get down to the bottom of it, selfishness reduces us to something less than what we really are. 
You were made for more than that. Jude moves on with his comparisons. He leaves behind these Old Testament characters and he comes on to, the, to nature. And he says, just look around. Clouds without rain, blown by the wind. Trees without fruit, uprooted, twice dead. Wild waves foaming up their shame. Wandering stars. All of these things lack a purpose. They all lack this one thing in common. They all lack purpose in their existence. A cloud that doesn't rain, what's the point? Its purpose is to nourish the earth. It, it's purposeless. A tree that doesn't give fruit, what's the point? Its purpose is to give forth fruit and nourish the people. It's worthless. Waves, their only product is shame. Stars, blackest darkness is reserved for them. Eugene Peterson says they are lost stars in outer space on their way to the black hole, which I thought was really helpful for me because I was like, all these things make sense. I get the trees thing. I get the clouds thing, but stars. And it says if God pulls back, he zooms out from his entire creation and he goes, every single part of creation speaks to what I'm telling you that these stars in outer space, the furthest stars in the most distant galaxy, that if they only exist so as to die, if they only burn bright so as to lose their light one day, if that's their only purpose is to exist so as to disappear, then they're purposeless. Selfishness leads to purposelessness, and purposelessness leads back to selfishness. One gets you to the other, and it becomes this doom loop of sorts, that when you get too caught up in one, you end up in the other, and when you get caught up in the other, you come back to the one, and selfishness and purposelessness go together. There's a guy in the late 80s named Chuck Hoberman. He created a child's toy, uh, maybe unwittingly. I'll put it on the screen. Anybody know what this is? The Hoberman sphere? You have one of those? It expands, it contracts, it expands, it contracts. It works on a scissor mechanism. So every, every one of those joints is just a, a little kind of pair of scissors. And so as you pull from the condensed part, you have that sort of condensed collapsed ball, which is a terrible ball. If you ever give that to somebody and it doesn't expand, it's just this kind of ball that doesn't roll right and it's sharp. But when you expand it, it kind of reaches its full potential and you, you get this awe. I mean, a little tiny sliver of awe that something like so small and condensed can be brought into something so large. And some of them are, are kind of the size of your fist and the, the original one comes out to like 35 inches across. And, and it's sort of strange how something so small and something so kind of collapsed can become something so great. The applications for this from Hoberman, he was an inventor of many things, but this was like they used this at NASA because they realized that this sort of technology, this idea of these scissor joints could be used for deployable uh, structures in outer space. That you could take something really small in outer space and then you could expand it and have a really firm structure. Anybody who's ever been to a tailgate under a canopy or a backyard party under a canopy, it's the same idea. That canopy that you buy from the sporting goods store that's like three foot little rectangle, when you take it out of the canvas and you start pulling and everybody gets on a corner and everybody pulls and it just keeps going, it's a, it's a scissor. And it opens up, it's a Hoberminian idea. So as the purpose of this thing is seen, what you see is you, ex- you have to expand to get to its full purpose. That it comes in the box, you can buy it off the shelf at Ben Franklin's, and you get, you get this little Hoberman spear, and it's fine in the box, and it's pretty small because it fits on the shelf, but it isn't, it isn't in its full design until it's fully deployed. It isn't in its full design until it's fully expanded. It, it gets its furthest reach and stretch. It's a little like a Christian. That as we grow into our purpose, as we grow into what God has designed us for, we tend to be stretching out further. Our reach tends to expand. And we actually find ourselves as believers, we go, wow, I didn't even know I could get that big. That God would give me this much to take care of. That God would give me this much to care about. That God would give me this much to pray about. 
You listen to the prayers of, of mature believers, and they're, they're fundamentally different than the prayers of a new believer. Not that one is right or wrong, but a new believer tends to pray about self. And the more mature the believer, if you listen to someone's prayer, you often hear a tinge of awe begin to in, infect prayers. I can't believe you would use me for a purpose like this. I can't believe that, that you saw someone as small as me and you would put me in something so large and transcendent. And it stops being about, God, give me my daily bread and give me health and give me the love of my life and give me what I want. And it's more about, God, you're just, wow. And, and what that is, it's, it's that sphere expanding ever so much. And as we reach out further and we stretch further, we grow further, it's like air in your lungs. You inhale and your lungs expand and they stretch. And the believer, it's no different. The believer, as you, as you run through life, as you work the, the way of Christ, you actually grow your ability to live out your purpose. Like a great sprinter or a great athlete, they don't start with 140% lung capacity. They work at it. They grow it. They stretch it. And as they train, as they work, as they stretch, their lungs actually grow. I know this. I have one lung. I gave one to my sister in a lung transplant forever ago. And we went in to get tested for this, and the, the doctors put us in a cryogenic something or other. I was like in this egg, and it was sealed, vacuum sealed, and I had to breathe and do exercises. And, and what they learned through all these tests is what our lung capacity was. And the reason I was chosen to give my lung to my sister is because I had 137% of lung capacity of someone my age, height, race, whatever. They're like, you have incredible lungs. What do you do? And I was like, I don't know. I play basketball every day. I just like playing basketball. And so it was the result not of some great genetic feat that I was born with super lungs, it was that every day of my life, I'd run up and down a basketball court. And so just over time, that expansion happened and the lungs got bigger. And the other thing I learned in that was that breath wasn't given to me for me. That you and I are infused with breath for something greater than ourselves. You and I are infused with this stretching purpose for something greater than ourselves. That the reason we get bigger is not to have more territory for us, more status or position. The reason we get bigger is so that we can accomplish God's purpose in giving it away. And it's a beautiful thing when we see it work. This is what the Christian life looks like. This is what the fullness of Christian life might be like, is when we're fully expanded, fully deployed, fully reached out, fully stretched. It's almost like as you take in more of God-designed purpose in your life, like your lungs, your life inflates into something greater than you ever dreamed it could be. And the same is true that when we let go of purpose, it seems to allow us to collapse back in on ourselves. When we, when we resist purpose and we resist the call of God in our lives, and we, we collapse back into a self, selfishness. So either you fill your life with God and all the potential of the universe, or you collapse on yourself and you live in the limited space around you. Inward focus restricts your reach and it restricts your beauty. So the question becomes, is there a void in your life? And if you answer no, then you're not paying attention. We are all born with a void in our life. The question is not really, is there a void? The question is, what do you fill it with? So the person fully stretched out has filled that void with God. Has filled that void with a God-shaped purpose and a God-sized dream. Has filled that with something greater than themselves. The person in the collapsed state has filled that void with nothing greater than themselves. And they will stay that, that size. They will stay in that collapsed state until they find something greater. Antonio Portia, an Argentinian poet, said, We become aware of the void as we fill it. We only become aware of the void as we fill it. And so the, the diagnostic for us today is what am I filling my life with? What is it that I really pray about? What is it in my quiet moments when no one's around? What, is that, what do I think about? What do I dream about? What's my fantasy? What is that thing that maybe nobody even knows? 
but it's at the core of my being, at the center of my soul, this is the thing I live for. And that's probably the thing that we're filling our void with. You were designed to live full of purpose, fully deployed, stretched to fullness. Scripture even hints that you know what that fullness is. Not entirely, but that deep down there's an awareness of your design. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time, speaking of God. He has also set eternity in the human heart. He said eternity in the human heart, and other uh, translations will say we are ignorant of what that is. We're not totally sure what that is, but we know it. There's like this hidden seed in each and every one of us, this sliver, this puff of breath that says there's something greater out there. And yet you and I, if we don't live in that, if we don't lean into that, we find ourselves living in the collapsed state of selfishness. And then we know that we're not living in the way we're supposed to. We know that there's more out there, but we just can't find it. No one can deny that there's something greater out there, which is one of the great, beautiful truths of Christian faith. It's one of the great things that we have in common with everybody, neighbor, coworker. Everyone is looking for something greater. And whether that's seen in what jersey you wear on Sunday afternoon or what club you join on a Tuesday morning or whatever it is, we are all looking to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And what God is saying is, it's very clear what it is. It's me and the purpose I have for your life in joining in a family of believers and chasing something greater than self. You and I have a sense of what we're made for. Mark Twain maybe says it best. The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. When you come into existence is matched only by the day you realize why you came into existence. When you come into existence is matched only by the day you find out why. That each of us is born here with a purpose. Each of us is born here with a calling upon our lives, with a reason that we wake up in the morning, with something greater than self to live for. Clouds are created to replenish the earth. Trees created to bear fruit. You are created for something greater. Around here, the language we use, which you can customize for you however you want, is to know Jesus and make him known. My purpose on this earth is to lean into God and the relationship he has for me and to turn around and make that relationship known with anyone else I can to live out of the wonders of God's miraculous love and his amazing grace, as opposed to the option that is available to me every single day, which is to trade this purpose, this mission that we have for a collapsed life of selfishness. To become an aimless wave crashing or a star with simple fading light. What's worse, Jude says, is that not only when we live selfishly do we kind of forego our purpose, but we actually become something we never intended to be. We become these critical souls. He calls them fault finders and grumblers. People no longer entranced by God's goodness, we become cynics. Kerry Newhoff says that most people become cynics not because they don't care, but because they do, or they once did. That most people become cynics not because they don't care, but because they once did, and life happened. That people are born optimists, and life has taught them to stop trusting, to stop hoping. That hurt is to be expected, not hope. The people have poured their lives into something. They poured their heart into a business and it didn't work out. They poured their heart into a relationship and it fizzled. They poured their, their life into some greater purpose and it just didn't give them what they were hoping for. And as a result, we have cynics, fault finders and grumblers who don't look at the world with a critical eye, which is one thing, but look at it with a critical spirit, which is a whole other malady. There's a problem with that. Cynicism by nature either excludes or ignores the God of the Bible. Cynicism by nature either excludes or ignores the God of the Bible. Jesus said, behold, I'm making all things new. 
Jesus came to usher in new hope, new mercy, new grace, new life. Even in the despair of our days, even in our darkest day, he says there is a joy that is coming that surpasses your understanding. And so the option is laid out before us every single day. Do you want to eat at the food bowl of an irrational animal? Simply satisfying the senses you have in front of you. Or do you want to eat at the feast of God's table? A son and daughter of the Most High, shoulder to shoulder with the King of Kings. Which is it that you're after? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, a verse that we love to quote in times of trouble, we know in all things that God works for the good of those who love him. We don't often quote the second part. Those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. That purposefulness is even infused in that. That those of us who love him, that God is working out the good in our lives, it's not just about that. We've not just been called to him, we've been called to something greater. We've been called to a purpose. And part of the way he works out things in our lives is by giving us a greater purpose for which to reach. For convincing us that living in a collapsed little shelf life kind of way is not enough. That you have to live out in the most expanded, stretchy way you know, and you're much more vulnerable that way. It's true. It's a lot easier to get broken when you're stretched. It's a lot easier to get hurt when you're reaching. It's a lot easier to fail when you try something you haven't tried before. But that is what God is there for to say, I've already figured that part out. I've sent Jesus. You're covered. You cannot outfail grace anymore. So try, find your purpose. What do you live for? The world will try to convince you that there is no purpose beyond your own pleasure, that every advertisement you see will reinforce that. The world will try to convince you that the upstream paddle is not worth your effort, that collapsing into yourself is good enough and frankly will feel better. And Jude is telling us there is something far greater on offer, that the effort to paddle upstream, to continue reaching onwards and outwards and stretching, that is our design. Cynicism will tell you, just go with the current. It's not worth the effort. And so you throw the oar over the side and you just float. That is no sort of life. Cynicism tells you that because cynicism and selfishness are tied together in a knot. Because when you're myopic and you only see your needs and wants, you really only see yourself. And when you're the only person in the boat, it is too hard to paddle upstream. Christianity is designed for a family of believers to paddle together. So when we open our eyes up and we realize we're not the only one in the boat, then it's a whole different ballgame. Then we pick up our paddles and we go, you paddle and you paddle and you paddle. We'll go together. We can do this as one. It's why we join a church. It's why you're here on a Sunday morning instead of all the thousand other things you could do today. Something in you is desperate for purpose. Something in you is desperate to be part of something larger than yourselves. And what Christianity says is this is it. It is knowing Jesus and making him known. And when we feel alone in the boat, that is not our chance to become cynical. That's our challenge to go and find someone else and get them in the boat with us to challenge them to come paddle with us, to invite them into a light of greater purpose. There is so much more to live for. The air that causes our lung to expand is an every moment reminder that God has given you life and breath for something greater than yourself. That his breath has been given to us when we exhale, given for a greater purpose than we ever imagined, and we inhale. That as we exist, We exist not for ourselves, but as delivery vessels of God's glorious grace, that his breath in our lungs is a purposeful thing, that he gives us life so that we might extend life to others, that we would exhale grace and love and hope to all around us as we live this life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you are uh, matchless. 
the scope of your uh, love is overwhelming. Your word and its beauty is astounding. That you can deliver truth through uh, your children, you can deliver truth through metaphor and words and pictures and phrases that in every moment of our lives, in our very breath, there is a metaphor churning in our bodies. That you have more for us, that you have infused us with a purpose far greater than we ever could have made for ourselves. God, thank you for uh, being a life-transforming God. Thank you for sending Jesus in our moment of greatest need, for saving us when we couldn't save ourselves, for the cross and the sacrifice endured, for the resurrection, where not only was death defeated, but life was enshrined. We were welcomed into a family. God, thank you for giving us something bigger to live for, for this family with you at the head. Pray, Father, that as we inhale and exhale with our days, as we stretch and reach as a community, as we make ourselves vulnerable to hurt and pain, God, we would do so under your protection. We would do so with a greater sense of life than ever before. We would feel truly alive in your purpose and in your plan As we live out your mission, we would feel your embrace. Father, that we would be ambassadors of your love for all we come across. So, Father, embrace us now. Remind us of who you are and who you have made us to be. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.